good to be here with you to open up the Word of God. Let me ask you a question as we begin. Are you ever saddened by people who don't seem to appreciate all the privilege they've been given? Maybe they don't appreciate all the uh, advantages that they have. Uh, maybe, you, maybe you've done lots of things for them and, and they don't seem to recognize that. Maybe, maybe your kids don't realize how many things you do for them and, and they're not saying thank you very often. Maybe you know someone who's squandering their privileges in life or in family and business and friendships and really any area of life. But it could be that you are guilty of squandering your privileges as well. And if so, you can relate to what we're going to see today in Romans chapter 9. The privileges that point but cannot save. The privileges of Israel that pointed them to Christ, yet they missed Christ. So I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, and please stand with me. And I'm going to read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. We're focused on verses 4 and 5 today. Remind you, this is the inspired and errant infallible word that we get to read right now. What a privilege. Romans 9, beginning at verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts today to your message, that you would give us what you desire us to have from your word today, and that you would generate in us a deep, deep love for you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 9 started with this heartfelt confession of Paul that you see this in the first three verses. The passion of Paul for lost, the lost people, the unbelieving Jews. He had this unceasing grief over their unbelief. And we saw this so deeply and, and really so, so touchingly. He celebrates the glories of God's grace in Christ. And at the same time, he is thinking of those missing out. And he is celebrating the glories of the gospel. And then he's thinking of those who are rejecting the gospel. And he was willing to give up his salvation for theirs. He was willing to do that. It wasn't possible, but what a beautiful expression of Christ's love. You know, when someone is in trouble, we want to help them. Recently, I was in my driveway out front of my house, and I heard someone crying for help. It was a bit faint, but I could hear it. And I ran into the house, and I told my family, someone is in trouble. Someone is screaming for help. And I go out into the middle of the street, and I'm listening, and I can hear it. And someone is screaming, help, help, 
help. And I ran to, to my neighbor's garage door because I could tell that's where it was coming from, the sound. And, and my, my neighbors are older and, and they're all by themselves. And I'm, and I'm looking at the house as I'm running up the driveway and it's pitch black. And I hear my neighbor and she is screaming at the top of her lungs, help me, help me, help me. And I'm talking to her through, through the garage door, and, I, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm fearing that her husband, Jerry, died, and, and, she's, and she's distraught. Well, it turns out she had been locked into the garage accidentally, and the, the lights were off. She couldn't see. And so I, I, I put my, my phone flashlight under, the, under the, uh, uh, the door there a little bit, and she could see. And then she's like, all right, we're good. Thank you so much. She just needed to know where the light switch was. You know, Paul wanted his people walking in the light. And they were in darkness. They were blinded. And what's worse, they weren't crying for help. They didn't realize they were blind. They didn't realize they were in the dark. They were dead, and Paul is gutted over it. The level of their rejection generates this deep emotion. Now at one point, as Paul is preaching the gospel to, Gentile, to, uh, to the Jews, God leads Paul to shake the dust off his feet and go to the Gentiles. But that doesn't mean that Paul didn't care. Paul engaged and reasoned. He, he welcomed all who would come to hear the word. He went out to preach the word. And I can just hear Paul, if only I could open your prison door, if only I could set you free, if only I could throw you a lifeline, if only you would see the light, wake up, I'm watching a train wreck. It had to have been hard for him to let it go, to leave it in the hands of God. Look with me at verse 4. You're wondering where Paul was at with this. He says this next, they are Israelites. You might think, well, he's just name-checking his people. What's the big deal? We all know who he's talking about. But this is a significant shift in the word, the name that he's using. All the way through Romans so far, he's called them the Jews. Eight different, nine different times from chapters 1 to 8, he's called them the Jews. And the Jew, to call them a Jew was a, using a political term, really, a nationality term. But Israelite was theological. Now he's getting deeply theological about them. He's talking about the descendants of Abraham through Jacob, whose name got changed to Israel. In Acts chapter 3, verse 12, they are, they are addressed men of Israel, literally Israelites. This was the sacred name for the Jews. This, the, the, this theocratic nation, people under God's covenant. This was their badge of honor. It's referring to their favored people's status. So going from Jew to Israelites, Paul is signaling his intent to zero in on their privileges. On their special privileges. So what he is about to say next just increases the pain. It increases the pain for anyone who loves the Jews. 
He lists a string of six God-given blessings that they have received and that they have squandered. These are Israel's great privileges. We see them in verses 4 and 5. Privileges that point but cannot save. Meant to point them to Christ. So let's go down the list. First, he says, to them belong the adoption. To them belong the adoption. Adoption as sons. God adopted Israel as a nation in, in that he selected them to be recipients of his special blessing, his old covenant blessing. He chose Israel to be his people, called them to serve his purposes, represent him. They were sovereignly selected by him. In Exodus 4.22, here's what, they were, what he was, Moses was to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. My son, my firstborn. Now don't get this wrong. This doesn't mean that every single descendant, physical descendant of Abraham for all time has been adopted into the blessings of eternal salvation. That is not what this is saying. Scripture calls Israel the son of God with the view to Jesus Christ as the true Israel and the true son of God. And the adoption should have pointed them and prepared them for Christ. Should have pointed them that through Christ they can be adopted into God's family and approach God as Abba, Father. To them belong the adoption and then also the glory. Glory is a great word in the Bible. It's, it's brightness, it's might, it's, it's power, it's splendor, it's greatness. It's, it signifies the presence of God. Glory. You see it all through Exodus and, and through the Old Testament and into the New and and, and in the Old Testament, in that economy, God's presence was, was in the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God, Israel's king, uh, the divine glory, it's, it's the divine glory cloud, it's the, the, the Shekinah glory, it's, it's the manifestation of God's special presence with his people. It's good to know that God is with you when you're a believer. God said to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God, by his glory, filled the tabernacle. God, by his glory, filled the temple of Israel. And he didn't fill the sanctuaries of any other nation. They were favored with the presence of God. The Shekinah glory of God. That's the glory that Romans 3.23 says we fall short of. In James chapter 2, verse 1. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of glory. Christ is the glory of God. John says, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the greater manifestation of God's presence. John 1.14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. To them belong the glory. To them belong the covenants. The covenants. Literally the idea of making a covenant, cutting a covenant, cutting a testament between two parties, a legally binding agreement with a promise. God saying he will do something based on his character with no help from us. Not because of our response, not because of our work. You see it three times in the New Testament, covenants, plural. Plural because they were renewed often. In Genesis 15, verse 18, he says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. 
Genesis 17, 1 and 2, when Abraham was, was, Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. What were the covenants? This was God creating a relationship and promising to bless his people. They were unilateral. They were made by God and they were, they were carried out by God. You had the covenant with Noah in Genesis 9. You had the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. You had the priestly covenant in Numbers. You had the covenant of the eternal kingdom through David. And David's then greatest son, who was Christ. But in each case, God is telling his people of, of the Messiah to come, or a future figure that would come to fulfill the agreement. The specific covenants were only given to the people of God. Uh, they spilled out onto other nations, and, and in the new covenant they are given to Jew and Gentile alike. But the covenants with Abraham and Moses and David... Israel had this great privilege over all other nations. The Gentiles were said, as Ephesians 2.12 says, to be strangers to these covenants, with no hope and without God in the world. And the covenants pointed to Christ, God's plan to save a people for himself, bringing us back to Eden, restoring paradise. And the Jews rejected the Messiah, the covenants pointed to. The covenants all pointed to the new covenant. And then he says, to them belong the giving of the law. The giving of the law. And the reason this isn't lumped with the covenants is it's the only covenant that wasn't unilateral. They were to do something. They were to, they were to obey the law. They received the law. God gave the Ten Commandments. God, God gave the law by, by revelation to Israel. And what does Romans 2 tell us? If you think back to what Romans 2 told us, it was that if you want to understand the law, you need to understand that you cannot earn your salvation and you must look to Christ. Galatians says that the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. It showed them their need for a Savior, that they couldn't be their own Savior. They missed that. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the goal of the law. Hebrews 8 tells us that this first covenant had fault. There was, God found fault even with the people who made the, he made the covenant with. It says if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion for a second. But he finds fault with them, and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And then the writer of Hebrews says, in the speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. But they had the law. And they also had the worship. The next in the line is the worship, literally the service. And this is referring to the temple service. The whole sacrificial and ceremonial system that God gave through Moses. Uh, Hebrews 9.1 tells us the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. This is talking about the temple worship that God had given them, uh, the regular offerings of sacrifices in, the, in this temple in Jerusalem. This was central in the focus of a Jewish person's life. If you lived nearby, you would travel to Jerusalem every year for the festivals. If you lived far away, you 
contributed to a fund to maintain the temple service. And there was a visible order of service. Hebrews 9, 1 through 5 uh, describes it, but the idea is you couldn't just approach God haphazardly. You know, it's interesting, even the way that maybe some of us approach coming to a worship service in, in, a, in a local church. And how sometimes we just, well, if I get there on time, I get there on time. I'll bring my coffee. No offense, but I'll bring my coffee and I'll bring my donut. I'll do whatever. And, 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 and we don't really have maybe that sense of deep reverence for God when we gather with the people of God. And I'm not talking about a place. I'm talking about something the people of God do together. And it just so happens that we do this in this place. You weren't supposed to approach God haphazardly in those days. There was a, a holiness. There was a, a weightiness. There, 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 was, there was a reverence that was to, that was to come and be a part of who you were and how you approach God. You wouldn't take it lightly. You wouldn't think it's nothing. You wouldn't, you know, do what I do sometimes when I'm not preaching. You know, I'm, I'm checking emails. I'm texting. I'm talking to people. I'm not attending to what's going on. I know how it is, okay? It just so happens that this keeps me on point. <laughs> Maybe that's why God called me to preach, so it would keep me on point, because I wouldn't pay attention otherwise. I don't know. But in those days, here's what you needed to come before God. You needed a blood sacrifice. You needed a washing. You needed a preparation for purification. You needed a priest to go in on your behalf. Blood to atone for your sin. You needed a priest and a substitute. And that would go on on and on and on and over and over and year after year. And what, what does Hebrews tell us? Christ offered himself once for all. Once for all. Jesus is our sacrifice. And this should have been pointing the Jews to a once-for-all sacrifice one day to come. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our purity. Jesus is our substitute. And they had the promises, the blessed promises of God. The, the many Old Testament promises and prophecies about the coming Messiah are just a sampling you can start in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God said to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That's Christ will, will crush Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. Psalm 22, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 16.10 you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Acts 2, 39. The promise, this is the apostolic preaching. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In Acts 26, Paul says, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. In Galatians 3.16, it says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but to one and to your offspring who is Christ. 
All the promises of God find their focus in Christ. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. And it is tragic for the Jews who had all the promises, knew what to look for, came from, Jesus came from their own race, humanly, and they rejected him. Move on, move on into verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs. Just doubling down on what he's been saying. The fathers are from them, the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through whom the promises of the Messiah were fulfilled. These are Israel's great privileges. Do you notice twice here in this passage, in these two verses, to them belong. They had been given these things. They were Grace gifts from God. He says, to them belong the patriarchs. The promises God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That became the focal point of Israel's identity as a nation. And the blessings from God. And what he does is when he references the patriarchs. This is going to bookend Paul's argument in these chapters. Going to the end of chapter 11. Which focuses on on the, the special status of Israel. He says, the fathers, the patriarchs, Acts 3.13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied. Now, there were a lot of Jews that woke up to that truth. God opened the eyes of many Jews, but many refused to believe. When you think of the patriarchs, you think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But not just them. How about Joseph? and Moses, and Joshua, and Samuel, and David. God spoke to Israel through these men. And virtually all of them predicted the coming Messiah. Virtually all of them foreshadowed the coming of the Messiah. And so when he gets to the end of verse 5, really the height of his grief over Israel's unbelief, it's reaching its zenith at this point, because he says this, from whom is the Christ? From whom is the Christ? The, the, the Christ came through the line of the patriarchs. From whom is the Christ? It's obvious but overlooked. Jesus was Jewish. For the Son of God to become human, he had to become part of some race. So by becoming a Jew, God gave the Jews the great honor, pointed to the Messiah in a way no one else got. From them come the Christ. None of them got this this point. And and by the way, all these privileges, you stack them all up, none of them got them salvation. The things they heard, the things they heard, it wasn't united by faith in in those who heard. They didn't believe in the promised Messiah that their privileges were pointing to. This is the worst squandered privilege ever. Can't you just hear them saying, We have all of this. What need have we of Christ? From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. And then you see at the end of this verse the the ultimate reality, the ultimate pinnacle of this passage. From whom is the Christ? So humanly speaking, they, they come from the Jew. He comes from the Jews. He's a Jew. But the next statement goes so far beyond, it eclipses everything. From whom is the Christ, who is God over all, 
God overall, blessed forever. Amen. You have to believe it. Ultimate reality, Christ's great priority, his supremacy. This eclipses Paul's agony and Israel's apostasy. The preeminence of Christ. This is significant for Christology. What you believe about Christ matters. Jesus is God. This is an explicit statement of his deity. This is an important New Testament testimony to the deity of Christ. Christ, the eternal God. This is not a benediction. I know it says amen. This is not a benediction. There's praise. This is not a benediction. It is a statement of the sovereignty and the deity of Christ. This is what it's telling us. This is, what, this is how Romans started. Romans 1.3, his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Jesus Christ, our Lord, of whom, concerning the flesh, Christ, but he is over all. He is over all, God, forever. It affirms the deity of Christ and the sovereignty of God and salvation. This is what this passage is, is pointing to really before, before the deep dive into the sovereignty of God in salvation. Most significantly, God's Son, the Christ, is God over all. Crystal clear statement of the deity of Christ following a reference to his humanity. Colossians 1, 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is God over all. We should celebrate this truth. Jesus is God. No mere man could redeem fallen man. Had to be a God-man. Emmanuel. God promised it. God forbore through the ages. History is revolving around God's glorious redemptive purposes in Christ. And so when Paul says amen, when Paul says amen, what he's saying is, I just made a statement that must be accepted because it's absolutely true. He speaks of the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Chapter 1, verse 25. And from him and to him and through him be glory forever. Amen. Chapter 11, verse 36. The God of peace be with you. Amen. Chapter 15, 33. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 16, 27. He only says this in regard to God. This is an exclamation point. Jesus is God. Listen to him. Believe in him. Rejoice in him. Glory in him. Christ is over all. He is the amen. Revelation 3, 14. He is the amen. The faithful and true witness. And they missed him. They blew right past the off-ramp. 
Missed all the signs. Missed all the signs along the way. The signs aren't the destination. They point you to the destination. Israel missed the turnoff. They went their own way. They kept insisting they were right. They got hardened in their hearts. They counted up their privileges and they said, wow, we are really privileged. Instead of falling on their knees before Almighty God, before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that the privileges pointed to. Christ was promised. Christ was from them. God gave the greatest privilege and it was rejected. Outright. Israel's great privileges were there to appoint them to Christ, not substitute for him. And these privileges still exist. And it is time for the living to repent. God's people historically missed the redemptive things he was doing for them. You know, sometimes those with every advantage don't take advantage of their advantages. They missed the point altogether. It's not uncommon. I remember back when I was a brand new believer. I had a bunch of friends in my, at my church, in my college group, and they all were going, a lot of them were going to a Christian college. And I was going to a state school, and I remember thinking, they get to go to chapel. They get to pray in their class with their professors. They, their professors open up the Bible I was going to a school where the professors were repudiating Christ. They were cursing Christ. They were mocking Christians. And I watched my friends squander the privileges they had at the Christian school they went to. They took the privileges for granted. In the rest of our time together, here's what I want to do. I want to point out really some warnings, really some warnings for us to take to heart. I think it's easy to lean on spiritual privileges and fail to recognize who they point to. And I just want to give some warnings to you, to me, to all of us. They're simple warnings, but they're very profound as well. The first is this, uh, don't miss Christ. Warning, don't miss Christ. Your spiritual privileges can't save you. They point you to Christ, but they cannot do what only Jesus does. You might have godly examples in your life. You might have heard over and over again gospel preaching. How Jesus died for your sins and was buried and rose from the dead on the third day and is coming back with blessing for those who believe and judgment for those who do not. And you must believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. You might have knowledge of the word. You know the word of God. The demons believe and shudder. You might have given verbal assent, but there has been no heart change and no observable change in your life. You might be coming to worship every week you're, you're singing the songs. You're exposed to the word of God. As Hebrews 6 says, you've tasted the goodness of the word of God. 
Maybe you have a godly heritage. You came from the right family. Your grandpa was a believer. Your brother's a pastor. You know missionaries. Maybe you prayed a prayer one day. That doesn't make you a Christian. The Bible never says praying a prayer makes you a Christian. Trusting Christ's finished work and obeying him does. That's what proves that you're a Christian. Relying on any action you did in the past as opposed to living a life that's reflecting Christ, you might be squandering your privileges. Maybe it's external obedience to rules and regulations, a law, doing what someone tells you, man-made rules and regulations. Or maybe you have the appearance of wisdom promoting self-made religion but have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's say you even grew up in this church with the gospel being preached and, and good doctrine and loving people and tons of outreach opportunities. You think that someone could be here for a long time and not be a believer? Think again. You think that someone could be here for a long time and not be regenerated, not be born again? The Jews thought they were in the door. The Jews thought they had it wired. They thought they were safe. They thought they were secure. But they were in danger of the fires of eternal hell because they missed Christ. So I'm here to tell you today that your heritage does not save you. Generational godliness doesn't save you. Bible knowledge doesn't save you. But how tragic would it be if you heard the gospel over and over again and you see it lived out and you reject Christ? You got your wor the word in your hand, you got elders who love you, and a heart cold and dead. Wouldn't that be a tragedy? I think it's a warning to us. Don't let your privileges, born in a godly home, relatives, friends who love Jesus, don't let your privileges lull you to sleep regarding the need of your soul. The privileges point, but they cannot save. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. Jesus is the only Savior. Jesus is who you need to go to. And maybe, just maybe, maybe you slipped in the side door. Maybe you're banking on your biology or someone else's biography. And you have no testimony. Don't be embarrassed to admit it. Better admit it now than to shrink in shame at Christ's appearing. You need to believe in Jesus yourself. Magnificent spiritual privilege cannot do what only God does. The heart must be made new by Christ. Don't miss Christ. He is preeminent. He's even preeminent in this passage. He's Three times here, verse 1, verse 3, verse 5. And every page of the Bible points to Christ. Every word of the Bible points to Christ. Everything in the Bible points to Christ. So don't miss Christ. That's the first warning. You have to take it to heart. Wherever you're at today, whoever you are, take it to heart. And secondly, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled, don't be deceived by false righteousness or a fish sticker. When I was a new Christian in college, I'll go back to 1982, I got swept, up, swept away, swept up in the Christian subculture that put stickers on our cars and Jesus on our t-shirts. And my favorite item was a plastic fish with, with a silver finish. You can stick it onto your car. And I know it sounds silly, even today, in 2019, it sounds silly for me to be saying this, but it was the truth back then. 
I would make connections very easily that weren't there just because of appearance. And so if someone had a Christian fish on their car, well, surely they were a Christian. Surely they loved Jesus. Surely they had good intentions. Until the day in 1983 that I walked outside my house to go get into my car and go to school. And my car wasn't there. It had been stolen. And I was living in Downey at the time, and somehow, somehow that, that 1973 Firebird formula, dual hood scoops, dual exhausts, white Naga hide interior, eight-track tape player, and a cassette, Jensen triaxial speakers, wink mirror. It got tracked down. They found it in El Monte. It had been driven hard. And the, fish, the Christian fish was still on it. And I thought to myself, at that moment, I learned something at that moment. I thought, you know what? That person who stole my car was driving around with the Christian fish on their car. <laughs> I wonder who, who thought they were a Christian. Silly piece of plastic. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. So if you're living like hell, no offense, kids, if you're living like hell, most likely means you're going to hell unless there's Repentance. Don't let the privileges of the unconverted fool you. If there's no pulse, they're dead. Ask any doctor or nurse. Number three, don't judge. Don't judge. Could happen to anyone. To them belong. Amazing string of privileges. A litany of blessings from God. They missed the point. Have you ever just completely missed the point on something? Don't pile on. Oh, they're so blind. I would never do that. You were blind before you came to Christ. The Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 4, that when someone turns to Christ, the veil is taken away. The eyes are opened. You know, Paul's people at that point were in the same condition he used to be in. He's remembering. He didn't forget. He knew only God could do what happened to him. Only God could save him. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much will be required. Paul had quite the Jewish resume, didn't he? It didn't save him. Israel had in bulk the privileges that point but cannot save. They guide you. It's like John the Baptist, not the Savior. A forerunner announcing loudly what is of primary importance. Who is of primary importance? Christ does what no privilege can. Jesus saves, lifts you out of the misery of sin and grief. And seats us with him in the heavenly places. So look. Don't miss Christ. And don't be fooled. And don't judge. But there's something else. And, and I think it's the most crucial takeaway for professing believers today from this passage. It's by way of application. Don't eclipse Christ. Don't eclipse Christ. Even Christians who, who know they're safe in Christ, who know they're eternally secure, can let Christ be obstructed and obscured in their life. It happens gradually. You don't plan it out. You just wake up one day and Jesus isn't your first love. 
It's possible to know Christ and let that love grow cold and, and let things slip in and obscure the sun and eclipse the sun and almost blind you. And you're fumbling for the light switch. It happened to the Ephesians. They went from hot to cold. They were forewarned. Paul goes to the Ephesian elders. They, they travel miles to get to him at the shore. Acts chapter 20. And he says, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among the flock from your own selves. From your own selves. And they're not going to spare the flock. They're going to draw people away after them. Their love for Christ grew cold. It didn't happen in, in the next day. But over time. To the point that when you get to Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Jesus is calling out the church at Ephesus. He says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Peter, speaking to Christians who were, who were going through tough times and finding it tough going and being persecuted for their faith. You know what he says to them? 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Is that you? Are you rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory even though you can't see Jesus and even though your life is hard? You know, the spirit grieves ungodliness. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they, they just love it when Christians adopt unbiblical ideas. They love it when Christians align with ungodly heroes. They love it when Christians twist the scriptures. They love it when Christians refuse to do what Jesus said. And, and Jesus weeps. Weeps over those who, who follow false saviors and, and, and drink out of, out of tainted wells. Let me ask you a question, and then we'll close. How much is Jesus on your mind? Okay, this is not a works thing. This is a, a love thing. How much is Jesus on your mind? Is he more beautiful to you than any delight? You know, all of our devices, it seems like, have screen time trackers now. I know it's very convicting. How often you were on your phone or your device today or in the past week, and it's Shocking sometimes, isn't it, when you see that? Screen time tracker on all your devices. And you know what? It's been proven that the more screen time you have, the more unhappy you are in life. The less screen time you have, the more fulfilled you are in life. In fact, Neil Postman, long before the electronic device revolution and explosion, said we are amusing ourselves to death. But here's what's been proven as well. The more save your time, the more peace. The more save your time, the more love. The more save your time, the more joy. The, the more constant dwelling on the word of God, seeing Christ in scripture and prayer and living to the glory of God, 
the more you experience the abundant life Christ gives. You see, a, a follower of Christ must be orbiting Christ like all the time. Just Christ fixated. You should be on Jesus' fixated person list. And sometimes, though, you don't feel it. And all you have to go on is what's in your mind. What God has given you that should touch your heart and your mind. And sometimes all you have are the promises. All you have are the promises, the bare word of God. Lean, lean heavy. Lean, lean your soul heavy on those promises when, when, when that's all you've got. You don't have any emotion. You don't have any feeling. You just, you just have the promises of God. Lean, lean heavy on those promises. Lean on Jesus. Lean on, on the love that will not let you go. Be captivated by the beauty of Christ. Above all, above all, wor worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Christ over all. Be, be captivated by the beauty of Christ. Let me close with Revelation 5. You know, as, as, this, as this passage really jumpstarts this, this deep dive into the sovereignty of God and salvation, you've got the passion of Paul for his lost kinsmen. You've got Israel's privileges. They're, they're really apostasy. But then you've got Christ's preeminence. You've got Christ's supremacy. You've got Jesus, God over all. So let me, let me end with these words. Revelation 5, 11 through 13. Look it up. I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Lord God, for for giving us Christ. Worthy of our adoration and worship. Beautiful Savior. Only Savior. Sovereign Savior. Exclusive Savior. Choosing Savior. Loving Savior. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for the cross, for the empty tomb, for the promised return for your presence with us always. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.